So we're reading Exodus starting chapter 4 verse 18, which is on page 42 to chapter 6 verse 1. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, Let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no, sorry, pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foreman went out and said to the people, 
This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday, or today, as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen realised they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to come before your word now uh, with a a sense of um, uh, the knowledge that uh, your word is infallibly true, uh, with that uh, knowledge that uh, everything we need to know about you and about uh, life and godliness is contained uh, in your word. And Father, we pray that uh, you would give us a humility of heart that Uh, seeks to submit to your word and we pray the same for the children next door in the Sunday school as well that uh, you would be honoured and glorified uh, in and through us and we pray in Jesus name Amen I tell you what I think we need these front lights on because the spotlight's not working could someone go and organise that thanks Andrew Uh, the question of how can an ordinary human being get to know the God of the universe is the question which people have been asking for millennia. As we look at the stars, as we look at the sun and the moon, as we look at the heavens, as we look at the world around us, we see the fingerprints of the creator. But how can we know more about the creator? Uh, Who is God? Um, What is God like? And more than that, as human beings, how can we connect with the God who has made the universe? These are big questions. Uh, 
And some people, of course, even in our own day, have made up their own version of God. I've heard people say things like, uh, the God that I believe in, well, uh, he or she is like, dot, dot, dot. And th what they do is they fill in the dots with uh, a God who is really a, a bigger and a nicer version of themselves. Um, other people, even people we meet in churches, have a, a version of God which is partly based on the Bible and partly based on human reason. So I've heard people say, look, the God of the New Testament, yep, absolutely, I believe in him, um, but yeah, as for the God of the Old Testament, yeah, I'm not so sure. I think he's a different God. I, I believe in the God of, of love, not in the God of, of, the, uh, of the Old Testament, as if you can split the two. So who is God and how can we tru truly know God? Not just know about him, but how can we know him? Now, last week in Exodus, we saw that this was kind of similar to the question that Moses actually asked God. Uh, you might recall that uh, there was a very strange encounter that happened at a place called Mount Horeb. It was out the far side of the desert. And uh, Moses had seen a, a bush in the distance which was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And he met God in that burning bush. And when God spoke to him, God told Moses that he was going to go back to Egypt and that he should be leading the Israelites out of Egypt. You remember that Moses had a few objections to this, some of which were in the form of a question. One of the questions he asked, well, he said, well, when I front up in Egypt and people say to me, uh, well, who is it who has sent you? Um, who shall I say? Um, who shall I say has sent me and God said, tell them that I am has sent you. Remember that? I am has sent you. And then God gave Moses his name and we don't quite know how to pronounce it. it the letters are Y-H-W-H because they didn't include the, the vowels uh, in the written form. But uh, we most likely should pronounce it as Yahweh. And so that's how I'm going. When you, whenever you see the word Lord, L in, in capital letters, uh, L-O-R-D, all capitalised, the Lord, then it actually reads as Yahweh. And that's how I'm going to pronounce it uh, during the talk today. And so in Exodus chapter 4, Moses returns from Mount Horeb back to his home in Midian he packs up his wife and his kids and begins the journey towards Egypt. Now, in one sense, what follows in the rest of Exodus is spectacular Sunday school material. Spectacular stuff. As Moses confronts Pharaoh and as God uh, inflicts upon, Israel, uh, upon Egypt uh, ten plagues, and it's spectacular stuff, isn't it? There's a pl the plague of frogs and the plague of hail and the plague of gnats and the plague of flies and the plague of... It's great Sunday school material. But before we get to that uh, next week, there are some puzzling issues in today's passage. Uh, 
issues which I kind of doubt that you're going to find any, in any Sunday school curriculum. In fact, one commentator I, I read actually said, um, you've probably never heard a sermon on some of these things and probably never will because that's not really a preacher's thing. And I'm thinking, well, <clears throat> it's my thing. <laughs> and so I'm going to show you some of these public puzzling issues. Um, for a start, let's have a look at chapter 4 and pick it up at verse 21. Verse 21 of chapter 4. Everyone got it? <clears throat> Yahweh said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Remember what those wonders were? The stick that turns into a snake, uh, the hand that becomes leprous, and the water that turns into blood. Okay, so these are the wonders and God's saying, uh, you know, perform those wonders before Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And then at a lodging place along the way, the, uh, Yahweh met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of, of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And at that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Okay, um, first pu puzzling issue. Um, when Moses confronts Pharaoh, uh, does God expect Pharaoh to let the people go? No. Uh, what will be the state of Pharaoh's heart? Hard. Who would harden Pharaoh's heart? Now, why on earth would God do that? <laughs> why on earth would God say to Moses, go to Israel, tell him to let the people go, and guess what? He's not going to let the people go because I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let the people go. What? Yeah, that's puzzling issue number one. Okay. Now, uh, second puzzling issue. In chapter 4, verse 24, as Moses and his family are en route to, Israel, uh, to Egypt... Uh, they've got to stop over, over somewhere overnight, so they check into a hotel, uh, a lodging place. I don't know what a lodging place would have been like. Checked into a hotel, and it was there, it was there at this lodging place that someone wanted to kill Moses. Now, who was it? It was God. It was Yahweh. Yahweh wanted to. Why on earth would God want to kill Moses? That's the second issue. Third puzzling issue. Go to chapter 6 and have a look at verse 1 and 2. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am Yahweh... 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, here God says that he did not make himself known to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob by his name Yahweh. But actually, actually, if you read Genesis carefully, um, God actually did make himself known to, uh, to them by his name Yahweh. Uh, for example, um, in Genesis chapter 15, um, Genesis 15 verse 7, uh, <clears throat> we're told that God said to Abraham, he said, I am Yahweh who brought you out of uh, Ur of, of the Chaldeans uh, to give you this land to take possession of it. And there are various other parts where God says, I am Yahweh. And he's referred to as Yahweh uh, throughout Genesis as well. And so why would God here say that he did not make himself known to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob by that name? Now, when I find puzzling issues in the Bible, things that I just don't understand, I'll tell you what my first reaction to it is. My first reaction is, it doesn't matter, I'll just skip over that to the next bit. And then I say to myself, hang on Scott, you know better than that. <clears throat> you know better. You, because it's often the case that it's these puzzling issues, these hard issues, that uh, when we actually do a bit of work on it, turns out to be the key that unlocks the meaning of the rest of the passage. And so I th actually think that's the case with this third puzzling issue. Think about it this way. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they knew the name Yahweh. But <clears throat> what does that main name actually mean? What does it mean for God to truly reveal his name, given that uh, in, in uh, Old Testament a name actually tells you about the person? What does it mean for God to truly reveal his name so that they could know who he truly is? And I think that's the issue. How can we truly know God? How can we know God as he truly is? Well, back to the story. Now, Moses and Aaron, his brother, they front up in Egypt. And how did people react when they arrived in Egypt with this message from God? Well, first of all, he goes to the uh, leaders of the enslaved Israelites. How did they, how did they react? Um, chapter 4, verse 29 <clears throat> 4 verse 29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything Yahweh had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they, what did they do? They, that's how they responded, they believed. And when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. 
enslaved and without hope, but now they are overwhelmed, overwhelmed with a joy, overwhelmed with a joy that, that Yahweh actually cares for them, overwhelmed with such a joy that leads them to bow down and to worship. Because you know what, friends? Hope. Hope is a powerful force. Hope is something which changes us. Now, what about Pharaoh? Well, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, Aaron and Moses now confront Pharaoh himself. And brimming with the prophetic confidence which enables someone to say, Thus saith the Lord, they now demand that Pharaoh must let their people go. And Pharaoh's response is predictable, but also very telling. Chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Go. Now, Pharaoh would have known that the Israelites had a God whom they worshipped. Well, what's he saying here? He's saying, Yahweh? You've got to be kidding. Yahweh? Never heard of him. Don't know who he is. Who does he think he is? I'm boss around here. He's not my boss. I'm not going to obey him. You've got to be joking. Well, he probably didn't say it exactly like that, but you know what I mean. Okay. So, but, you see, now Pharaoh wants to show everybody who really is boss. And so, um, believe it or not, um, back in the time when I was in my 20s, I had a job once working as a Brickies labourer. Can you believe that? <clears throat> I did for a little while. And then, and then after I finished working there, I went back to the same company uh, as a graduate accountant. It's a meteoric uh, uh, rise. <laughs> uh, I was a Brickies labourer and uh, the pay was really, really good, but the work, forget it. <laughs> it was hard work, I can tell you. Not a whole lot of fun at all. One of the jobs that Pharaoh had assigned for his Israelite slaves was uh, not carrying bricks, which is what I did, but producing bricks. When they made bricks, they used, uh, they used straw as an aggregate for the, for the clay. Now, in chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, Pharaoh now gives an order. The Israelite slaves are no longer to be supplied with straw. Uh, now, they must go out and they must find all of the straw that they need for themselves. But here's the catch the production quotas remain the same. Pharaoh is letting everyone know who is boss. But there's also an industrial relations slash slave control strategy here as well. He's squashing the rebellion because what he's doing uh, is, he is in, he's turning the people against Moses and Aaron. He's saying to them, look, if you want to follow these guys, this is what's going to happen to you. He's turning them against Moses and Aaron, and guess what? It was a strategy that worked. Chapter 5, verse 19. 
the Israelite foreman realised that they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and they said, May Yahweh look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Familiar territory for Moses. Forty years earlier, he'd been rejected by his own people when he tried to save someone. And the Israelites, they're still in slavery. There has been no rescue. And their oppression is now far worse. And one thing, friends, is absolutely clear. They are helpless. There is nothing, there is nothing which they can do to get out of their slavery. They are stuck. Just like our slavery, you know, your slavery and my slavery. You know the type of slavery that I'm talking about? Uh, we all know that the world that we live in is not right. There's much that is absolutely beautiful and stunning in our world, but there is also so much which grieves us and which offends us. And at the global level, we, saw, we see every day there's news about wars and people fighting and killing each other and conflicts and at a local level, we see people treating one another just so, so poorly. And in our own lives, uh, I guess it's true when you think about it honestly, that we don't love and obey God the way we should, do we? The Bible tells us that the heart of the human problem is always the problem of the human heart. Our natural inclination is to live our way and not to live God's way. And... The Bible has a word for that attitude of heart and that word is sin. We're slaves to our sin. It impacts the way that we live our lives. It is the root cause of death. Um, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's because we sin that we die. And it attracts the judgment of God. And there's nothing that we can do about it. By ourselves, we cannot break free from our slavery to sin, to death and to judgment. And the key phrase, of course, is by ourselves. It was the same for Israel. Trapped in their slavery to Pharaoh, they were helpless. There was nothing that they could do. Now, let's just press the pause button here for a moment and go back to our three puzzling questions. Why did God want to kill Moses in chapter 4, verses, verse 24? Now, we don't know actually how that happened. Perhaps it was the case that he suddenly got very sick and it looked like he was going to die. We don't know. But what we do know is that his wife, Zipporah, who is a Midianite, she did something which turned away God's wrath. In verse 25, what did she do to her son? She, she circumcised him. Now, for whatever reason, one of Moses' sons had, had never been circumcised. And when you hear circumcision, uh, you should connect the dots and the word covenant uh, should come to mind. 
And when we think of covenant, we should think of promises, the promises that God made to Abraham of a people, a land, and a blessing. Remember that? And it was when, uh, how could you forget it? Uh, it was when Abraham was 99 years old and his wife Sarah, she was tracking not too far behind him, she was 90 uh, when God said that this time next year, uh, they didn't have any children, but God said that this time next year you're going to have a son. Now, uh, humanly speaking, uh, the promise of descendants was an impossible promise. But it happened, didn't it? It happened. Isaac was born. And Abraham and all of his male descendants were to be circumcised as a symbol. Now, it's not a very public symbol, circumcision, is it? It's not like wearing a wedding ring, but it's a very meaningful symbol because it is a symbol that says that the very existence of descendants of Abraham, the very existence of Israel, uh, came about through a great miracle of God. A baby boy from the bodies of Abraham and Sarah. And that's why a particular organ of the male body is used for the symbol. So if a man did not have his son circumcised, well, that was a bit like saying that the existence of Israel was not a miracle of God. And in the Bible, in Genesis, a person who was not circumcised was to be cut off for that reason. Now, Moses' wife, even though Zipporah is a Midianite, she, she recognised this. She saw the issue. She repented. She circumcised the boy. And things got back on track. This was very, very important, particularly in the light of what was about to happen and Moses' role in what was about to happen in another puzzling issue. And that's the issue of Pharaoh's heart. You see, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Was God just being unjust towards Pharaoh? Some people say, oh, you can't blame Pharaoh. I mean, God hardened his heart. Well, you know what? In other passages of Scripture, like in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, in that interesting interplay between God's will and man's will, it says that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> he was accountable. Now, the reason Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God is the very same reason why God waited until Sarah was 91 before she bore a son. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so as to create an impossible situation, a humanly impossible situation. Why would Israel eventually be able to leave Egypt? Was it because of the kindness of Pharaoh's heart? Was it because Pharaoh had really progressive industrial relations policies? Was it because Pharaoh was concerned for... The no, no. Why was Israel eventually able to leave Egypt? Was it because Moses was such a brilliant diplomat and negotiator? Or was it because the slaves were just so strong and so powerful and so well organised and so capable that they were able to break free from their Egyptian oppressors? No, no, no. <laughs> On all counts... 
the confidence with which Moses and Aaron had initially strode into Pharaoh's court, it's now dissolved. They're shattered. They're gutted. They don't know what to do next. And Moses goes and talks to God about it and have a listen to God's reply in chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. In chapter 7, verse 2, a humbled Moses goes to God and says, what are you doing, God? And God says in verse 2, he says, well, Moses... You are to say everything I commanded you and your brother Aaron to tell Moses to let the Israelites go out of his country. So he's saying, I'm sending you back. You've got to go and ask him again. Tell him again. And then he goes on, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. So it's going to get worse. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people the Israelites and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. That's the reply. Pharaoh had said, Yahweh, never heard of him. But Pharaoh was about to know Yahweh in a way that he wished he'd never known Yahweh. Pharaoh was about to know Yahweh as Yahweh reveals himself. Pharaoh was about to know Yahweh as judge and ruler. Abraham and Isaac and Japheth, they had heard the name Yahweh, but their descendants Israel were about to truly know Yahweh as the saviour, the deliverer, the mighty one who brings them out of slavery. Friends, the exodus from Egypt became the defining event the event by which Israel, the event by which Egypt, the event by which all the nations around would actually truly know Yahweh, would truly know who God is. And so from now on in the Old Testament, whenever, if, if anyone were to ask, how can I know God? How can I know the creator of the universe? Who is he? What's he like? Well, you'd say, look to the, to the exodus, to that one event. God is Yahweh. And Yahweh did for his people what was impossible for them to do for themselves. He saved them out of slavery from the mighty hand of Pharaoh, the great ruler of the world the greatest ruler of the world, one of them. God is Yahweh. Now, what about us? What about you and, and me? I mean, if someone was to ask you, well, how can I truly know who God is uh, and what he's like and how I can connect with him, uh, what would you 
say? Would you say, well, look to the Exodus? You know, at one point in my life, as a non-Christian, I was asking exactly those kind of questions. And I thought, how do I find the answer? I thought, well, how about ask a Christian? <laughs> so I did. I thought a Christian should be able to answer those questions. And I asked a Christian, and guess what? He did know the answers as well. I was very grateful for that. And he told me about a miracle which was even greater than the Exodus. A miracle which is centred around the cross of Jesus. For when Christ died on the cross, the so-called prince of this world was defeated. God took away from Satan the very power that he had over us. And what was the power that God had over us? The power that Satan had over us, the power that Satan had over us was the guilt of our sin. It's that pointing finger of accusation that says that you've rebelled against God. You're one of my people. You're enslaved to me. You're enslaved to sin and to death and to judgment. You're coming with me. That's the power that he had over us. And what did God do on the cross? He took that power away from him by his son Jesus actually bearing the punishment for our sin, taking our guilt upon himself. And what's Satan got left? What can he accuse us of now? Nothing. He has been disempowered. He's been defeated, disarmed on the cross. Now the proof that this is actually what was happening on the cross is the great miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is that great event whereby God exerted his mighty power in raising Jesus from the dead, which shows to us that, that death has been defeated, that sin has been paid for, and the connection between us and the ruler, the prince of this world, uh, that is, our enslavery to him has been broken. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that Jesus has done for us that which was impossible for us to do by ourselves. We couldn't do it. There's nothing that we could do to change that. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't try being religious or good enough to get right with God. What was required was that slavery be broken and Christ has done that. Have you trusted in Jesus? If so, then your slavery to sin, any reason for you to have fear of death and the judgment to come has been broken forever. Now, I remember that uh, after that conversation I had with that Christian that night, I remember going to bed that night with a profound sense of peace. You know, the peace that you experience, it's a peace which comes not from just knowing about God, but that peace that comes from knowing God. Knowing God as he truly is through his son Jesus the only one who could ever say before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, 
the one whose name that we now want to tell out to the whole world. Not just as a name, but in terms of who he is, who is the judge, but he's also our saviour. And he's done so through the cross. So let's pray as we give thanks to God. Father, we want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, as God who is ruler, God who is judge, God who more than anything is saviour. Father, we thank you that you've done for us which we could not do for ourselves, that uh, you have saved us from the guilt of our sin and you've brought us into the freedom of uh, being your children. We thank you so much for that. And we pray, Lord God, for each one of us here, if there's someone who's not made that, uh, uh, taken that step of putting their trust in, in you, that they would do so. We pray for all of us that the, uh, the great news of who you are and what you've done for us would be at the very heart of our lives, would permeate throughout our lives and would be the very thing which motivates us throughout our lives. And we do so for your praise and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.